you open your holy word, that you will give and grant much grace to us all to hear your word effectually, to hear your word to the furtherance of our sanctification as your people, and for those, Lord, who are here in our midst, who are without Christ, we pray, indeed, Father, we beg of you in Jesus' name that they will hear your word unto salvation this very day. Father, we trust in you for such things that only you can do by the mediation and merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake and in his holy name, we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to take God's word and let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 to verse 4. Matthew 5, starting at verse 1 to verse 4. As we will consider this morning, when grief is godly. When grief is godly. Matthew 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. There's nothing more natural in a fallen, sinful world than sadness, grief, and sorrow. These kinds of emotions are the inevitable consequence to the suffering sin brings. But of course, for many people, they spend a lifetime, as it were, trying to escape these emotions. Like King David in Psalm 55 and verse 6, most people in our day hope against hope that they would have wings like a dove so they could fly away and be at rest. In other words, the general cry of humanity at large is a cry to break loose from the things in this world that would only cause sorrow. In fact, the most popular aspect of our American culture is driven to free people from ever having a bad day. It is called the entertainment industry. And this industry thrives on helping people escape from the sad realities of their lives into another world where they don't ever have to think about their problems. This is why the movies, television, and sports rake in billions of dollars every year. You see, the very concept of being entertained has become, in our, in our American culture, a life necessity. It's amazing. Next to having food, water, clothing, shelter, and health insurance, I must have my 62-inch flat-screen TV or life is over. This is really how many, how, how many people think in our day. 
Entertainment is a life necessity because it helps me escape from sadness and stay, as it were, perpetually happy. Now, of course, the greatest tragedy in this mad pursuit to escape those things in life that cause us sorrow is how even the church has sought to help in this matter. Whether it's in the possibility thinking of self-esteem gurus like Robert Schuller, 40 some odd years ago, to the 21st century with Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now and Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, and then to the myriad of teachers who promise health and wealth just by ordering God to give it. In each of these examples, the one common denominator is a promise with God's alleged approval that you don't have to experience one bad day in your life. And these religious personalities in the movements they've spawned have made millions of dollars by selling a false version of Christianity that guarantees what the gospel of Jesus Christ never offers. But such false teaching like this is not only found among those who are the obvious religious hucksters. Since the early 1990s, there has arisen a movement within so-called Bible-believing churches that has strongly advocated a form of ministry that is designed, that is intentionally designed to make the unbeliever feel as comfortable as possible. To achieve this, though, we are told that a worship service must cater to the felt needs of the unbeliever. This means, therefore, that a worship service needs to always be positive, upbeat, and above all, entertaining. This is because we would not want an unbeliever to come into a church meeting and feel bad or sad. So we would never invite them to Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Why, they get enough of that from the world. Hence, the church needs to provide a place to escape all that sadness and sorrow. So then buying into this mindset, an abundance of churches have gone to great lengths to remove anything from their worship services that would be perceived as negative. But at the heart of this removal has been the actual gutting of the gospel itself. Remember, the world is seeking to escape the grief of its problems so the church must not add to that by telling them negative things. So where the gospel confronts sinners in their sin, calls them to repentance and warns them of God's judgment and wrath if they do not turn from their sin and follow Christ, these biblical truths must never be heard from a pulpit that seeks to be positive. Instead, the unbeliever must be told that God loves them and has only a wonderful plan for their life. Now, while this kind of so-called positive message may make the unbeliever feel good about themselves, I mean, gee, just look at Church of the Highlands. Oh, yeah, I'm calling them out. Over 60,000 people, over 60,000 people in this state going to that place to have their itching ears tickled just to make them feel good. It works together a crowd, I'll give them that. Yet the tragedy of this is that such a message, listen to me, such a message is false and deceiving. 
I'll tell you why. Because there is a grief that God wants us all to face. There is a grief God wants us to face. There is a sorrow we must feel if we would know and experience the salvation God promises in Jesus Christ. Well, with this in mind, I want to draw your attention to our present series in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This passage of Scripture opens up what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. And these verses compose the recorded words of our Lord Jesus as he began making a series of eight declarations regarding the very character of those who belong to the kingdom of God. These eight declarations are known as the Beatitudes. And what they describe for us is the new nature that is resonant in every Christian. Hence, we must not see any of these Beatitudes as separated or divided from one another. They are giving us instead a complete picture of what a Christian looks like from his initial conversion to Christ to his life as a whole. Therefore, we must not single out a beatitude as one characteristic that might be true of us while the rest of the beatitudes cannot be found anywhere in our life. This is not how Christ intends for us to understand the beatitudes. If we are truly born again, listen to this, if we are truly born again, if we have been genuinely converted to Jesus Christ, then what these beatitudes describe will be true of all of us as Christians in a greater or lesser degree. The point is, none of these Beatitudes will be absent from a life God has saved in Christ. Now, last week, we began our study of the Beatitudes by unpacking only the first one, recorded in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit describes where salvation begins for any sinner who is coming to faith in Christ. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our own spiritual poverty and moral bankruptcy apart from God. It is the essence of the humility which God's grace brings to bear on a sinner he is actually drawing to Christ. This is due to the fact that when we are poor in spirit, we've come to see the truth of what God reveals about our sinful state. We see all our righteousness as the filthy rags they are in the sight of God. We see all our supposed goodness as corrupt and shot through with sin. But most importantly... With this revelation of our exceeding sinfulness, we see at the same time our only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. So Jesus promises that for the poor in spirit, look at what he says. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To such people who come to see the weightiness of their spiritual impoverishment apart from God, they and they only will be those who flee from their sin and fly to Christ. Only to these sinners will they receive the kingdom of heaven. So, what then is a Christian based on Matthew 5 and verse 3? A Christian is a sinner who has come to realize, acknowledge, and feel the weighty burden of his sinfulness before God. He is no longer blind to his sin, but he sees it for all the ugliness and rottenness that it is in God's holy sight. A Christian is someone who is poor in spirit. That is the first beatitude. And this is the foundation for all the other beatitudes that will follow. Now, for our study this morning, we turn to the next beatitude that our Lord brings to our attention here in Matthew 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. From this passage, there are three questions I want to raise for our study. First, what does it mean to mourn? Second, how do we know if we are mourning? And third, what is the result of mourning? To begin with, then, let's consider the first of these three questions. What does it mean to mourn? Notice again what Jesus declares. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To follow the same pattern as our last study, let's begin to answer this question on the meaning of mourning by underscoring what it is not. Let's first begin with the negatives, what it isn't. First of all, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he was not referring to that type of mourning which is true of all mankind. This would be a mourning expressed through grief and sorrow caused by profound loss, most notably the death of a loved one. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 4 speaks to such a season when it proclaims that there is a time to weep, a time to mourn. And certainly when anyone faces the death of someone who, whom they cherish dearly, there's nothing more appropriate and even legitimate than to mourn the loss of that person. But this was not the kind of mourning our Lord was referring to here in Matthew 5 and verse 4. Nor was Jesus referring to the sadness and grief we might experience by the deep disappointment in a wayward child or the loss of a job or failing a school exam. Each of these examples of grief are no doubt common and can touch any, any one of us at different levels. Furthermore, when Jesus speaks here of those who mourn, we must, not, we must not equate this with someone who has a depressive or melancholic temperament. There are people who are just naturally wired to always look on the dark side of things. It's like the character Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. You remember Eeyore, right? No matter how bright or pleasant circumstances may appear to be, Eeyore could always find something to be sad about. And there are people who are like that. They are morbidly introverted. And over time, they become downright self-absorbed. But again, when our Lord declared, blessed are those who mourn, he did not have such people like that in mind. No, when Jesus spoke here of those who mourn, he was not speaking of mourning or sadness in any natural sense. Rather, those who mourn are those people who are spiritual mourners. In other words, tied together with being poor in spirit, those who mourn are sinners who feel deep and abiding godly sorrow over their sinful condition. Having come to the realization of their spiritual poverty due to sin, their heart breaks with contrition over the fact that they have sinned against God. This is what spiritual poverty leads to. The poor in spirit become those who mourn. Explaining this further, consider what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. To mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. It is quite inevitable. As I confront God in his holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit and immediately that makes me mourn. I must mourn about the fact that I am not like that. But obviously it does not stop there. A man who truly faces himself and, and examines himself in his life is a man who must of necessity 
mourn for his sins also for the things he does. This is what we see, for example, in King David in Psalm 51. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, David's response was godly sorrow. It was this spiritual mourning he expressed in prayer to God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In these words we see clearly the nature of true godly sorrow. David not only confessed his sins, but he refused to shift the blame for what he did to anyone else. He owned his sins as his sins. But most importantly, he understood why his actions were in fact sinful. What David did was against God. What he did was against God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David could have justified his adultery with Bathsheba by excusing himself for feeling lonely one night or blaming Bathsheba for bathing on her rooftop where David could see. And he might have even excused himself for murdering her husband by simply declaring that, well, it was in his power to do so because he was the king and he was above the law. However, we find no such self-serving, arrogant excuses in David. His first response to Nathan when confronted with his sin was without hesitation, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the heart and language of a man who mourns according to Matthew 5 and verse 4. This is the expression of godly sorrow. David faced his sin. He owned his sin. But he was deeply brokenhearted over his sin because it was against God. And this last statement really gets to the core of godly sorrow, what it is. Listen very closely. It is more than confession. It is more than confession, though it includes that. It's even more than owning our sin as our sin, though it certainly involves that as well. But at the heart of godly sorrow is a heart that is genuinely broken and contrite over what we have done against God. In fact, this is why David expressed in Psalm 51 in verse 17, listen to this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Therefore, when Jesus declares his blessing on those who mourn, he is describing someone who literally feels the deepest and most heartfelt grief over their sin. In fact, the very word translated here for mourn comes from a Greek term that expresses the strongest and most severe kind of sorrow. It is a word that carries the idea of deep inner agony, which might even be manifested by outward weeping and wailing. So then when God brings forth a genuine work of saving grace in the life of a sinner, there will not only be an acknowledgement and confession of sin, but there will be the felt presence of a heart 
that is broken to pieces, a heart that is torn in grief, agony, and sorrow over personal sin. Our heart is ripped to shreds, as it were, because we've sinned against God. That is spiritual mourning. And this kind of sorrow will be present when the initial, listen, when the initial act of conversion to Christ takes place. Listen to how A.W. Pink describes this. I'm going to quote him at length. There must be a real sense of sin before the remedy for it will even be desired. Thousands acknowledge they are sinners who have never mourned over the fact. Take the woman of Luke chapter 7 who washed the Savior's feet with her tears. Have you ever shed any over your sins? Take the prodigal in Luke 15. Before he left the far country, he said, I will arise and go unto my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Where shall we find those today with this sense of their sinnership? Take the publican of Luke 18. Why did he smite upon his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because he felt the plague of his own heart? So of the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost, they were pricked in their heart and cried out. This morning springs from a sense of sin, from a tender conscience, from a broken heart. It is the agonizing realization that it was my sins which nailed to the cross the Lord of glory. It is then a mourning over the felt destitution of our spiritual state and over the iniquities that have separated between us and God. Such mourning always goes side by side with conscious poverty of spirit. But to be one who mourns, who mourns over their sin is not only a sorrow felt at the initial stage of conversion. When Jesus declares... Blessed are those who mourn. The verb translated mourn here is used as a present tense verb. It's a present participle, actually. Thus, the more literal translation of this statement would be, Blessed are those who go on mourning. Who go on mourning. What is this teaching us? What is this saying to us about the Christian life? It is telling us that a Christian is someone who feels the daily grief of daily sins. In fact, as a Christian grows more closer to God, the more he will mourn over his sins which dishonor God. His life will be a progressive self-discovery of all the sin that remains in him, even though he is now redeemed. A true Christian says with Paul in Romans 7:18, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And with this self-realization, a true believer will then echo Paul's agony in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am. To feel wretched is to express misery and grief. But the wretchedness in this context is over the constant harassment and down, in downdrag of indwelling sin. Therefore, in the heart of a true Christian will be the constant mourning over his sin. The constant sorrow over his ongoing sins and corruption that plague his every step. This is the mark of a genuine conversion to Jesus Christ. Indeed, let me say, that, let me say it this way. 
While a Christian has the assurance that God through Christ has forgiven him all his sins, yet out of love for God and a hatred for sin, a Christian cannot help but to be stricken with sadness and sorrow whenever he does sin against God. So then, who are these whom our Lord describes as those that mourn? What is the answer? I'll sum it up. It is every born-again child of God whose heart feels the deepest agony and most painful grief over his sins against God, both in the past as well as in the present. Those who mourn, therefore, are those who feel godly sorrow. But having understood the meaning of mourning, let's move on to our next major question. How do we know if we are mourning? Or I could fan the question out this way. What are the signs of godly sorrow? What are the signs of godly sorrow? That is to say, if any of us would fit into this category of those who mourn based on Matthew 5 and verse 4, then what is the fruit of this godly sorrow? In the first place, if we have godly sorrow, then we will be sensitive to our sin. This means that we will not take our sin lightly. We will not joke about it or mock it. Moreover, we will not try to make excuses for it. We will not be like King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 when the prophet Samuel confronted Saul with his sin. Saul tried to come up with every possible excuse to justify why he did not fully comply with God's commands. In fact, even when he finally confessed, I have sinned, it was not without betraying a self-centered heart that was more concerned about his reputation than God's honor. Saul was not a man who had godly sorrow. He was not sensitive at all, not one bit to his own sin. In the second place, if we have godly sorrow, then we will grieve over our sin because it is sin. We will grieve over our sin because it is sin. Unlike those who grieve over their sin because of how it makes them feel, to be full of godly sorrow is to mourn over sin in its true nature. Consider how the Puritan Thomas Watson teased this out in three different ways. First, we mourn for sin as it is an act of hostility and enmity against God. Thomas Watson declared, sin is contrary to God's nature. God is holy. Sin is an impure thing. Sin is contrary to God's will. Sin does all it can to spite God. And if we would have godly sorrow, then this is how we will see sin, even our own sin. And our hearts will be broken over such hostility that we, that we have ever sinned against God. Second, Watson noted, we must mourn for sin as it is a piece of the highest ingratitude. Now listen to that again. We must mourn for sin as it is a piece of the highest ingratitude. Whenever we sin, we are defying what God has done for us by sending Christ to redeem us. We are showing by God, we, we are, we, that is, we are showing God by our sinful actions, 
how ungrateful we are for everything it cost him to save us and reconcile us to him. But if we're full of godly sorrow, then our hearts will be broken for such a selfish, self-centered, unthankful attitude toward the Lord. Finally, we must mourn for sin as it is a privation. It keeps good things from us. It hinders our communion with God. King David declared in Psalm 66 and verse 18 that if we would cherish iniquity in our heart, then God will not listen to our prayers. How serious do we take this, beloved? Just because Christ has atoned for all our sins, just because Christ has taken our condemnation away, that does not mean that our fellowship with God cannot be broken if we sin. Do you remember the Laodicean church? Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. What, what was it that they did? What was the great sin the Laodicean church did? They shut Christ out of their fellowship due to their sin. They shut Christ out of their fellowship. The felt love, felt presence, felt power of the Lord was completely absent in that church. They had deprived themselves of Christ's communion because of their unrepentant sin. And this can be true of any Christian. This is why when there is godly sorrow in their heart, there is a mourning over what we have lost due to our sin, namely the sweet and holy presence of God in communion and fellowship. In the third place, if we have godly sorrow, then we will strive to repent of our sin. Kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? But you have to say it. Repentance is very unpopular in the church. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, however, makes this unmistakably clear. Listen to this. For godly grief produces repentance. For godly grief produces repentance. Godly sorrow is not satisfied with the feeling of anguish that sin has been committed, but there is a pursuit of holiness engendered by this sorrow. Godly sorrow is joined then with a hatred for sin that seeks to kill sin by the power of the Spirit. This means that sin is both avoided and abhorred. Hence, when we, feel, when we are full of godly sorrow, we will not make any terms of peace with our sin. No terms of peace. We are at war with our sin. We despise it for the enemy it is, and we will do everything necessary to see that it is weakened, subdued, and put to death. In short, we will repent. We will repent of our sin. In the fourth place, if we have godly sorrow then, we will be grieved at the sins of others. Here's something that Maybe you don't think about. We will weep not just for our sins. We will weep for the sins of those around us. We'll be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 in verse 136. Listen, listen to what the psalmist said here. Listen to this. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Now let me ask you, do you weep over the sins of others?
Does your heart break over how much God is dishonored and blasphemed daily in this world? Is that a sharp burden in your heart? I dare say that here in America, and now I'm going to touch a nerve, it seems that Christians are more upset because of how much the U.S. Constitution is desecrated than the Word of God. There appears to be more grief over how those in government are robbing us of our liberties than how much America as a whole is a nation that defies the living and holy God. Shame on us. Shame on us for that. We have seriously got the wrong priorities in the evangelical church at large in this country. We need to seriously check our hearts here. To have godly sorrow is going to lead me to be in agony, not just over my sins, but the sins of others as well. I am going to be grieved, brokenhearted, over how much the Lord God is affronted every day in this nation I live in in this world I live in. That's what godly sorrow is going to do. That's what godly sorrow will do. Finally, we have godly sorrow if we have godly sorrow, say it that way, then we will turn to Jesus Christ who is our salvation. To quote again from 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, listen to this. For godly grief produces repentance that, here's the rest of the verse, that leads to salvation. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. To mourn over our sin in a manner that honors God will not turn us away from Christ but toward Christ as our only hope to redeem us from the plague and condemnation of our sins. See, this was the difference between King Saul and King David. Saul's grief over his sin drove him to the witch of Endor, whereas David's grief drove him to God. One man was consumed in the sorrow of this world, which led him to, to despair and ultimately suicide. But the other man, David, was broken with godly sorrow, which led him to seek God's forgiveness and restoration. And this is really the most important sign of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a gospel sorrow because it sends you to Christ. It leads initially to salvation through faith in Christ, but then, even as Christians, godly sorrow keeps pointing us back, back to Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. To say this another way, Godly sorrow will never fail to preach the gospel to our broken hearts. A Christian 
will not be like Saul and seek the remedy for his sorrow by what the world can give. But a true believer will be like David and pour out his broken heart to God who will forgive and restore. Well, with that latter statement, Let's turn now and look very briefly at the last major question of our study. What is the result of this morning? Turning back to our text, Jesus tells us that for those who mourn, what shall they be? They shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Now, what do you suppose this comfort is that our Lord is referring to? Well, it is the comfort of gospel forgiveness on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, it is the comfort of knowing that the sin which plagues us will one day be gone forever. Thus, it is a twofold comfort. First, we are comforted by, by what God has done for us in Christ. This is the comfort of the cross. The comfort in knowing that all our sins and the condemnation they deserve have been atoned for by the sacrifice of Christ in our place. But then secondly, we are comforted by God's future promise that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where sin shall be no more. There is coming a glorious day. I spoke of this quite directly in our Sunday school hour. There is coming a glorious day when we will never again, never again face the temptations of our flesh the world, or the schemes of the devil. On that day, we will know a comfort that will never be disturbed, that will never be interrupted by the nagging presence of indwelling sin. Therefore, to our godly sorrow, God graciously gives us a comfort for the present and a comfort for the future. But it must be said, this promised comfort is only for those who have godly sorrow for their sin. It is a very exclusive comfort. A comfort that can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, drawing this study to a close, let's turn back to the five signs of godly sorrow and very carefully test ourselves. First, are we sensitive to our sin? What is our general attitude to our own sin? Do we laugh at it? Do we mock it? Do we excuse it? Do we attempt to blame others for it? Or do we own our sin as our sin, not seeking in any way to justify it, but to confess it for what it is as a transgression against God? Are we sensitive to our sin? Second, do we grieve over our sin because it is sin? To say this another way, are you sad because you were caught sinning? Or are you sad because you disobeyed God? There is a difference. There is a difference. Whatever grief we would have over any sin we commit... Is it a grief that is expressed over the fact that 
What we have done is hostility against God, ingratitude toward God, and it has deprived us of our fellowship with God. Can we say then that our grief over sin is a God-centered grief? When you read Psalm 51, that's what you see. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. But wait a minute, what did he do to Bathsheba? Wait a minute, what did he do to her husband Uriah? Wait a minute, what did David do to the nation? Oh, they're all secondary. They're all secondary. David broke the law of God. It wasn't the transgression against man's law. He broke God's law. The sin, the offense, was against God. Third, does our sorrow over sin lead us to repentance? How much does your sin upset you? Does it disturb you enough that you would do whatever it took to be rid of it? Can you say that your grief over sin is combined with a hatred for that sin, which leads you to resist it and abhor it? Well, we may be sad over the fact of our sins, yet we may not be repenting of our sins. Therefore, our sadness is shallow, not godly. So let me ask you, do you repent of your sins? Understand this, if there's no repentance, there is no salvation. That's how serious this is. If there is no repentance, there is no salvation. Unrepentant sinners don't go to heaven. Unrepentant sinners go to hell. Fourth, do we grieve over the sins of others? That is, do the sins of others break our hearts because their actions are a violation of God's law? Do we mourn over the fact that the people around us defy God and transgress his law daily? And lastly, does our grief over sin, this last question is so important, does our grief over sin send us to Christ? Does it send us to Christ? If you want to know if you have godly sorrow, ask yourself this. Okay, ask yourself this. Do you look to Christ alone to forgive you and cleanse you of all your sins? Do you look to him alone? Only in Jesus Christ can we find the needed comfort for our sin-plagued hearts. Take two other examples from Scripture. Judas and Peter. They committed the same sin. They both betrayed Christ. They both denied Him. Judas was very remorseful over what he did. 
But Judas did not have godly sorrow. Judas, in his remorse, sent him first to throw the money back at the religious leaders. But then, rather than going to Christ, where did Judas go? He went and killed himself. Judas's grief was not godly because it did not send him to Christ. The apostle Peter, on the other hand, denied Christ three times. And the third one was the real whopper because he caught eyes with Jesus when he did it. What a moment that was. And Luke tells us that Peter went out into the darkness and wept bitterly. But where did Peter end up? He went back to Christ. He returned to the Lord. And that is what godly sorrow will do. You will go back to Christ. Do you have godly sorrow? Then ask yourself this. Am I trusting Christ alone for my salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for how you've opened our eyes to see with a, a sharpness, a clarity, what godly sorrow really is, what it takes and where it does indeed send us to you, Lord. It sends us to you. And I do pray this morning in earnest, Holy Father, that that you would work, that you would create a godly sorrow in those hearts here today that are without Christ. That you would give them that new heart that feels and knows and confesses the spiritual, the spiritual impoverishment of their souls before you, Lord, and feels and knows and confesses the grief over their sin. And with that, they run to Christ. They run to him even now. Holy Father, may such saving, redeeming grace be worked in that one today to that end. But Father, for those of us who are your people, oh Lord God, have our hearts grown cold, have our hearts hardened, 
Are we cherishing any sin? Not dealing with it in the right and proper way, truly repenting. Father, forgive us by the blood and righteousness of Christ. We pray if that is the case. And also, Lord, we ask, work in us by the power of the Spirit that real repentance that will flee from and put to death every known sin in our lives. By the power of your grace for us in Jesus Christ. We pray such things earnestly in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.